listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. started a new series last week where we're really kind of looking at uh, holiness, looking at what it is and what it means to be holy as God is holy. And we talked about the scripture to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14. And it says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. First Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 15 says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, and they're then quoting uh, Leviticus 11.45, you must be holy because I am holy. As I stated last week, the holiness of God is probably one of the most difficult uh, attributes to explain, partly because it is one of God's attributes that is not shared inherently by mankind. Now, we're created in God's image, and uh, because of that, we can share many of his attributes to a lesser degree, of course, so we can share in God's attribute of love, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, but some of God's attributes, like omnipresence, that, that God can be everywhere at once, omniscient, you know, that God knows all things always, Om, omnipotence, that, that God is stronger um, than, than anyone else. Um, and again, those are attributes that will never be shared by human beings, okay? Similarly, holiness is not something that we will possess as an inerrant or an, an inherent part of our nature, we only become holy in relationship and in union with Christ Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, only in Christ do we become the righteousness of God. Now God's holiness, it is what separates God from all other beings. It, it's what makes God separate it's what distinguishes him from everything and anyone else. God's holiness, it is more than just his uh, perfection. It's more than just purity. It is, in, in its essence, it is his otherness, if, if that makes any sense. I loved how Jim kind of talked about that, you know, just being that, that God has, has created you to dwell in his presence. And that, that is true. God has separated you. That's what holiness is. It, it's separating. And God has separated us unto himself so we can experience his presence, his holiness. And so again, that holiness, it, it is God's transcendence. He is so high and lifted up. He is so far above and beyond anyone or anything. God's holiness, it embodies the mystery of his awesomeness. And it really causes us just to gaze in wonder at him as we begin to kind of just comprehend and and take in just a little of his majesty. And again, this is, we talked about this last week. This is what I would call the beauty of holiness. Last week we talked about, again, how holiness, it really is more a state of being rather than 
doing. Uh, again, we talked about the holiness movement, and I think what a lot of us remember uh, from the holiness movement is uh, just the, the list of rules, the, the cannot do's. You know, no drinking, no smoking, no going to movies, no dancing, no playing cards. I mean, there was just a long list of, of cannot do's. And again, and so a lot of times we kind of just think our holiness really is more about what we do before. It's not. Your holiness before God is more about your being than it is about your doing. What you do for God, I mean, the ways you serve him, the ways your spiritual gifts serve one another, your obedience to his command, the fruit of your life, all of that is extremely important. And I'm not minimizing, I don't want to downplay that, okay, all of that is an indispensable part of our Christian life, but all of that is secondary to our relationship, our intimacy with God. The problem for a lot of us when it comes to holiness is we kind of, our focus gets lost in the relationship because we're so busy over here trying to keep the rules and the laws and the commands and, and we lose that relationship with God. And again, the moment you take your focus, your view off of the relationship with God and you really kind of get focused on trying to keep all of the rules, what eventually happens is you'll just kind of start to become very religious. There'll be kind of a legalism um, about your your faith, and it all becomes more about doing rather than just being in God's presence and growing in that intimacy with him. Again, if we make it all about the rules, the commands, the laws of God, and again, as good and as righteous as they are, if we make those the primary focus and our loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength secondary, you will miss the beauty of holiness which is knowing we have been set apart. That's what holiness is. It's being separated. It is being set apart for a very, very specific purpose. And that purpose of God is that you will be fully loved and accepted by him and learning to love him in return with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. So with this in mind, I, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to kind of skip because I, I didn't get to some of what I wanted to talk about first. So just all the baptisms this morning, which is an awesome thing. Uh, so with that in mind, I want to just look at the issue of sin. And how does it affect, how does it play out in our relationship with God, especially as believers in light of holiness? Does, does sin, the question I want to answer today, does sin make us any less holy in the sight of God? Now, there's a doctrine out there uh, that is being taught in some churches, and it's known as perfectionism or, or sinless uh, perfection. And what it teaches is that it states it is possible for a Christian to go the rest of their lives without ever committing a sin. Now, while it's true I don't believe Christians have to sin, I think it's equally true, and I think we can just base this on our own personal experience, can't we? I think it's not possible for a Christian to go the rest of their lives without ever sinning again. Again, the evidence is all around us, right? When God saves us, again, God's intent, his goal isn't to make you perfect. His goal is to make you forgiven, redeemed. And people who go around claiming perfection or sinlessness, I mean, they may be talking a good talk, but I'll guarantee you, you hang around them long enough or you get to know the people they run closest to, 
you'll see a whole different story. Again, this is one of the myths of holiness. Uh, We're not made holy so that we never sin again. We are made holy. We are set apart so that we can have this living, dynamic relationship with God. And he has made provisions for you and I um, for that ongoing need of forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. That's why Jesus came and died and his blood was shed so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. Now, sin really is kind of defined as that which is opposed to the character and the will of God. Anything that opposes the the character, the will of God, would be sin. Sin is something, again, oftentimes we don't take sin serious enough. And we don't really understand the the, the depravity, the the deepness of of how deep sin runs um, within us. It is something that has permeated our whole being. So that it is is virtually impossible to understand who we are. I think it's impossible to really appreciate the cross of Christ. It is impossible to truly appreciate the shed blood of Christ without understanding the depth and the depravity of sin. People, both believers and unbelievers, sin both in action and attitude. And the Apostle Paul describes three basic kinds of sin in his epistles. So to understand how sin makes us the kind of people we are, it's important to understand these three different kinds or types of sin. First kind of sin described in scripture is personal sin. Now Paul in Romans chapter three, he's making this comparison between the Gentiles and the Jews. And here's what he says, there's no difference between between you. For all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. So a personal sin may be something that is a sin of commission, that is doing something that we know is wrong. It can be a sin of omission, uh, failing to do something we know is right to do. So personal sin, it can come out and be expressed as an act or an attitude. Sinful acts, again, are produced by people uh, with sinful attitudes. Mark 7, beginning in verse 21, Jesus kind of describes it this way. He says, for within, from within, from the heart, of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. He said all of these evil things proceed from within and is what defiles the man. Again, that's why Jesus kind of equates anger with murder and lust with fornication. When we as Christians or believers, when we commit sin, again, our fellowship with God is broken. Our fellowship with God, it's disrupted, but not our sonship. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. The broken fellowship that we have between us and God when we sin, again, as we confess that sin, the blood of Christ cleanses us and God accepts and forgives and renews and restores us. Now again, if a person's not a Christian, okay, they will not experience fellowship with God until they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
Now again, Scripture will use a variety of different terms uh, when it's talking about personal sin. Uh, you know, Paul kind of talks about that in Romans 3 is falling short. We just alluded to that one. Isaiah kind of sees it as going astray in Isaiah 53. Uh, David, King David, uses the word transgression uh, in his sin with Bathsheba there in Psalm 51. And uh, Paul uses the word trespass in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1. Second kind of sin described in Scripture is what is called our sin nature. Now, the word sin you'll find in Scriptures, it will occur in both the singular and the plural, okay? Usually when the word occurs as a singular noun, it is referring to the sin nature of people. And all of us have a sin nature, and we got that the moment we were conceived. David says this in Psalm 51, uh, chapter 5. Again, this is coming out of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He said, behold, this is part of his confession. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my mother, and in sin, my mother conceived me. Again, that is, that is from the moment of our conception, that sin nature is, is within us. The Apostle John uh, noted in 1 John 1, 8, he said, if we, have, if, if we say that we have no sin, again, see, that's in the singular. And what he's saying there is if we say we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So again, the Bible describes sin as having kind of a negative influence on our intellect, uh, our conscience, and again, those are two aspects of our personality. And therefore, our sin negatively impacts our personality. It's our sin nature that kind of tempts and influences us to sin. So once we're born again, and this is the important thing to understand, and this is where some of this teaching of sinless perfection, in my opinion, is a very dangerous teaching. Once we're born again, our sin nature is no longer dominating or in control of us. Now, I know all of you have seen maybe the pictures in some of these tracks where, you know, there's kind of this throne and, and self is on the throne or ego is on the throne um, and, and it shows, you know, that we are, we're in control, we're, we're calling the shots in our lives and then when we become born again, uh, Christ comes on the throne of our lives and he takes control, he's calling the shots. Well, I kind of want you to see that with the sin nature. I mean, when we're conceived, our, our, that sin nature, it is on the throne of our lives. It is, it's calling the shots. It's dominating. When, when we become born again, what we do is, is that sin nature is dethroned. It, it is no longer dominating us. It is no longer in control of us. We now have a new nature. We are a new creation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that new nature is now dominating. That new creation is now in control through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is what will enable us to do those good works God has planned and purposed for us. Now, it's important to remember that even though the old man, the, the sin nature has been dethroned, it's no longer in control, it is still in there. It is still in us. And it is seeking, it is fighting to regain its place and position of dominance in our lives. 
This is, again, this is part of the spiritual warfare that you, that you sense this wrestling um, of, that we all feel from time to time between our flesh and our spirit. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay, there, there's that battle. There is this warfare. Our flesh, that old sin nature, it's set on sinning. It wants to continue to rebel against God just like it did before you became born again. This, our spirit man, however, that new creation, it is set. We want to please God, and we want to enjoy intimate fellowship with him. And so there, there is this struggle between that sin nature that's still in us and that new creation um, that we are becoming through Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's kind of alluding to there. When he says in Galatians 5.17, he says, For it is the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So there's this battle, this tug, and, this tug of war, this back and forth between the flesh and the spirit. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and again, he's writing to believers here. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. So again, that old nature, that sin nature, it, it, it's waging war with that new nature, that new creation, our born again nature. And that continues until we die or Jesus comes again. The third way sin is described in scripture is as imputed sin. Now, the word impute, it kind of literally means to ascribe to, to reckon over. It can kind of be almost like a, a transferring um, to. Romans 5.12 describes it this way. As by one man, sin entered into the world. Who's he talking about there? Adam. So by one man, one man began, and it was through that one man that sin came in and entered into the world. And with that, he says, and, and death by sin. It wasn't just sin that Adam brought in, but he also brought in death. And so passed or imputed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Again, if you make a purchase with a credit card, okay, that purchase is imputed. It's transferred into your, uh, your account on your credit statement. In the same way, the sin of Adam, it is imputed, it is transferred onto the whole human race. And this is done because Adam, he was kind of the seminal and representative head of the human race. So just as a child, they may partake in the wise or unwise financial decisions or investments of a parent. So we live with the consequences of the imputed sin of our father, Adam. Just as citizens live with the consequences of decisions made by those who represent us in government, so we also live with the consequences of our representative's decision in the Garden of Eden. Now again, we, we hear that, we look at that, and we think, that's not fair. That was Adam. That wasn't me. But again, our willingness to so readily engage in sin like Adam suggests we would have eventually done the same thing Adam did, given enough time. So God not only imputes Adam's sin to the whole human race, 
But scripture says he also imputes Christ's righteousness to all who believe in Romans 5.21. So the biblical remedy for imputed sin is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, along with understanding some points about um, sin, I want to just say three things about salvation very, very quickly. I want to just talk about the three tenses of salvation, okay? And you'll find these in Scripture. There is a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense of salvation, okay? So as believers, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, that's past tense. That's, that's the past tense work of salvation. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, which we know is eternal separation from God. It is death. Okay? We are being saved from the penalty of sin present. We are being saved from the power of sin. That is present tense work of salvation in us. So we've been saved from the presence of sin, or from the power of sin, and one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. So past tense, we've been saved from the penalty, we've been saved in the present tense from the power, and in the future tense, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin by the death of Jesus on the cross. We're being saved by the power of sin uh, today through the working of the Holy Spirit in us. And we will be saved from the presence of sin to come when Jesus returns. Now in John 1, in John chapter 1, verse John, he's dealing with the second tense of salvation. He's dealing with the present tense. John's dealing with the problem of how do we as believers overcome the power of sin? So it's, it's acknowledging there is a power of sin that is at work around us. There is a sin nature in us that wants to kind of comply with that in the flesh. And so he's trying to help us to understand how to overcome the power of sin. And that way, as a believer, when we do sin, we know exactly what to do. Ultimately, John wants to teach us how to really avoid that as much as possible, okay? That's ultimately John's real concern. For he says in chapter two, verse one, he says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Then he goes on and says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. And so again, he's giving to us the answer, the solution for the Christian is found there in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, again, notice that's plural, and that is talking to the acts of sin. He says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how does all of this affect our relationship with God, his holiness, and our call to holiness as he is holy. So here's the thing. When a Christian sins and then conceals it, rather than confessing it, it disrupts our fellowship with God. Now notice I said fellowship and not sonship. The disciple John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, understood there really are two aspects 
to relationship with God. One is fellowship, the other is sonship. John 1.12 says, but as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the authority to become children or sons of God. See, when you're born again, you're born into the family of God. You are born again as a son, as a daughter of the Most High God. And that sonship can never be lost. But fellowship with God through our sins can be disrupted. So again, there is a difference there between sonship and relationship. Sonship is a matter of life. I think it's 1 John 5, 12 says, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. That's sonship. Either you're born again or you're not. Either you're a child of God or you're not. Fellowship is a matter of light and darkness. You'll always be fully accepted in the sight of God even though some of the things you do may not be acceptable in the sight of God. Story of the prodigal son, I, I want to get to that because I think that that gives probably the clearest illustration example, of, again, of that sonship versus fellowship. Happens there in Luke 15, and it's just one of the greatest testimonies, I think, to what I'm trying to say here this morning. And these are very familiar with the story. Those of you that are not, I would encourage you to go home and, and read uh, Luke 15. Remember that the younger son comes to his father one day and he basically tells his father, yeah, I can't wait around here any longer waiting for you to die. So can I just have my share of the inheritance now? Now, you got to understand the son's request. It is cruel. It is cold. It is callous. It is shocking. I would imagine as Jesus is telling this portion of the story, there's probably just a gasp that goes out when Jesus tells the request that this son makes to his father. So the son, the father agrees and gives his son his money. The son goes off to a distant land and he squanders all of it on wine, women, and song and eventually spends his last penny, ends up friendless, alone on a farm feeding pigs, which again, that is the lowest rung. That is the bottom of the barrel in Jewish living. You couldn't sink any lower than that. At some point, it says that, that the prodigal came to his senses, or he has this thought, that if I'll just go back to my father's house and beg him to take me back, not as a son, but just as a servant, it just might work. And so he sets off, and as he goes, you get this sense he's kind of memorizing the speech that he's going to give to his father when he sees him. And the way Jesus tells the story, he says, as the father sees him coming from a, a distance, says the father felt compassion for him, says he ran to him, fell down, embraced him, and just began to smother him in kisses. Now listen to what the son says to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's, that's what sin does in the life of a believer. It causes us to question our worthiness before God. And, and it's interesting because if you go back in the story and you kind of read all of what the son was prepared to say to his father, all he gets out are those words, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father just cuts him off. 
Doesn't allow him to say any more. He said to his saves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a signet ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let it celebrate for this son. This son of mine was dead and has now come to life again. He was lost but has now been found, and they began to celebrate. Again, the fellowship between the father and the son had been restored. He just simply said, Father, I sinned against you in heaven. There's confession there. And immediately, fellowship is restored, but sonship was never lost, even though he questioned it. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father right away says, quickly, bring these things out for my son. Remember the older son, he comes home. Hears and sees the celebration, the singing and the dancing. And he asks what's going on and he's told his younger brother has returned safe and sound. Remember the reaction of the older brother? He gets really angry. His father goes to him and he kind of just begins to plead with him. He says, come join us in this celebration. Your brother who was lost is now found. He who was dead is now alive. Look at the response of the older son to his father. Look, for so many years, I have been serving you, and I never neglected a command, a rule, a regulation, never violated ever one of them. And yet, you have never given me a young goat so I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Listen to the father's response. Son, you have always been with me. See, once, once that sonship begins, you're always with God. It, it, that, that nothing will disrupt that. Nothing will come in between you and the love of God. It says, son, you have always been with me. Now get this last statement. All that is mine is yours. Do you know why he missed that? Do you know why he did not understand that last statement there? All that is mine is yours. He was so preoccupied so devoted, so focused to the rules, to the regulations, to the commands. He even said so that he lost relationship with the Father. Folks, every time you lose this and it becomes about this, you're gonna miss the beauty of holiness, which is all that is his is yours. And when this becomes a distraction to this, you are gonna miss the beauty of holiness. You're gonna miss what you have been set apart what you have been separated unto, and that is that intimacy. It is that dynamic relationship with the Father. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we just pray this morning, and I just pray specifically, Father, for any of those who may be here this morning that may be kind of that prodigal son, that God, maybe they've been kind of running from you and God, they kind of look at their sins, God, and they feel like it, it, it has uh, just uh, made them unworthy in your sight. 
And yet, God, we learn from the prodigal son that if we'll just come to our senses and just come back and, Lord, just acknowledge that what we've done has, has sinned against you, it has, it has uh, disrupted that fellowship that you want with us, God. And, Lord, as we just acknowledge that, that immediately you just take and, and Father, you, you uh, pick up where we left off in that relationship because, God, that is never lost. Sonship is never lost. We're, we're never not your children, even though there may be times, God, where we're in sin and rebellions and disobedience against you. So, Father, I just pray if there are any that are right now just in that place of unworthiness this morning, that, God, they would just turn from their sins, God, that they would just again receive and accept the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of all sin. And God, just apply that right now to their heart, to their spirit. And God, that you would just renew them in the joy of their salvation. Father, I also pray maybe for those that are like the older brother, that God, they're just so into keeping the rules and the laws and the regulations, that God, they have lost, again, the joy of the relationship of what it means to be holy, of what it means to be set apart, to be able to experience again that unique, dynamic, living relationship with you. And God, as you again, you plead with us to come to join you. And God, I pray, Lord, if there's any older brothers here, that God, we would hear, we would heed your call to come and to be restored, to join in in that celebration of life. So, Father, we just ask, Lord, that you, again, you see our hearts. And, God, you know where we struggle. You know how the enemy tries to deceive us into thinking that, again, Lord, when when we sin, that that it breaks, again, that sonship. So, God, I just pray, Lord, you'll just, again, renew our minds, renew our hearts, renew our spirits. And, God, again, just, again, just instill in us that sense that nothing will ever separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus. We just thank you for all of this. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.